Welcome to the Royale Political Wire on Next STL. This is Maureen Hanlon filling in for Stephen Fitzpatrick Smith. Um, with me, I have a conscripted co-host, Catherine Redman, who is a yoga instructor, judicial assistant, law student, <laughs> activist, scholar, thinker, <laughs> dreamer, laugher, liver. Great person. Uh, great person. And I also have Mike Wolf, lawyer, former judge of the Missouri Supreme Court, Dean Emeritus of St. Louis University School of Law, longtime professor at St. Louis University School of Law, uh, political uh, political knower, political follower of the action, and of course, midwife advocate. So um, welcome to the Royale Political Wire, to our two guests. Um, so we are just here to talk about, um, get some perspective from both of you on kind of the the scene as it is here today. And so I wanted to, this is of course taped above a bar, um, a tavern continuing longstanding St. Louis traditions of politics and taverns. <laughs> um, and so, you know, Mike Wolf told me a story once mm-hmm. that I'm hoping he'll retell yeah, here. I, well, Um, When I came to St. Louis uh, 43 years ago, and Katie and I share this in common, not 43 years, but (laughs) we're both not, quote, from here. Transplants. We're transplants. And when I came here, um, uh, the story was that if you ran into the Board of Aldermen meeting and said your tavern's on fire, that half the board would leave. (laughs) So there was kind of a tradition and about 1979, I was involved with helping the Family Care Center of Carondelet when it was a little tiny uh, one uh, building uh, thing with one doctor part-time and a whole bunch of volunteers from St. Louis U's nursing school and medical school, and they were providing care for people in the Carondelet neighborhood. And they had $25,000 in a grant from the uh, community development people in the city. And some bureaucrat decided that they did, that uh, that was not a bad, not a good way to spend money. So they cut off the money. So I went with two of the board members of the program to see the Alderman Red Villa. I we went to the Cottage Inn on South Broadway, which had been his bar, but he was still there, holding you know constituent time in the middle of the afternoon. I thought I had walked into 1947 <laughs> because it was an old bar with pictures of. Democratic presidents, of course. Uh, they hadn't gotten around to Jimmy Carter yet, but, they, you know, they were getting there. <laughs> and everybody was wearing a suit, and, and Red was there with his stogie and, and at a booth. And we, when, when it was our turn, we went to the booth and told him what the story was with this family care center of Prenolet, which, by the way, is now a big multi-unit. Yeah, they're unit. huge. They're huge, mm-hmm. and they've got federal funding, and they've had it since so long time because we had... It really morphed into something uh, big and special. But then it was really tiny. And he heard us out, and he said, well, uh, the mayor, this is when Jim Conway was mayor, be down here next week dedicating a park, and I'll talk to him. Okay. So, well, thank you, Alderman. And we you know, left. And about a week and a half later, somebody called up the people who were organizing the thing and said, the money's back. <laughs> That's the way politics worked. I mean, you know. Conway was mayor, but he had this skinny alderman named Ben Shamel running against him. And, you know, the, the worst thing you could do is, you know, tick off a guy like Red Bella, who was, you know, a long time. He was the dean of the board of aldermen, a wonderful man. But it was, it was really a classic. So. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, I wonder how many of those deals are still construed in that way where the funding goes and then reappears. But it's an interesting... There was a better case to be made. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what do you think of the Board of Aldermen now? You think probably not half are tavern keepers, which is... No, and, I, and I'm really, I, I really feel good about how people who have come into the city in recent, the last couple of decades... Have come here and, and made their homes in the city, and really gotten energized and got in, gotten into politics. The board of aldermen has changed profoundly in the last uh, 10, 20 years, um, with a lot of new energy and a lot of new blood. I think it's really terrific. Um, and I'll say this something for the old guard, <laughs> and maybe uh, you can take this any way you want to. But I, the the people who were, have been kind of running the city and really caring about the city. In, in, many, in some respects, set up the conditions for people who are young and energetic and smart and entrepreneurial would want to come and live in the city as opposed to going someplace out in the suburbs or going to some other uh, metropolitan area. So I think that the, the, development, the development of the city has been good. I mentioned uh, when we were talking earlier that in, when I was governor's council in 1993, um, I talked to the state demographer, and he told me that with current trends, that the city of St. Louis in 2018 would be smaller than the city of Springfield. We would be <laughs> the third largest city in Missouri. Wow. And it didn't happen. And it I think not. it's a tribute to the people who really got involved in developing this city. I mean, there were a lot of uh, kind of... Uh, hand-to-mouth developers who started and then, you know, the historic tax credits came in and saved some interesting uh, places and spaces. And then I think, uh, and, you know, some of my colleagues at St. Louis University won't be happy to hear me say this, but Father Biondi had a lot to do with <laughs> redeveloping a whole section of this city. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was a major redeveloper. So, I mean, you know, so there's a lot of, uh, um, a lot of people that you, like and a lot of people that you may not be that fond of who contributed greatly to this city. And I think it's really uh, where we are now is, is, uh, is pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, uh, obviously the news the past couple of days has been very full of young people, notably the high school students in Florida, um, kind of speaking up and this kind of idea of what is the boomer generation, kind of the ones that are at least in theory, running things right now. Some days I wonder if anyone is running anything right now. <laughs> but, you know, this kind of what, how do generations kind of turn over and, and what mm -hmm. credit is, is given to the kind of these younger voices? Obviously, you know, I think these young students are being received somewhat differently, mm -hmm. perhaps, than younger voices in our own city. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. And I mean, you, you, you have, you're closer to that uh, generation <laughs> than I am, but I, I'm impressed. Yeah, I think, I think that there is something to be said. I think every generation kind of has that moment of um, being called into action. And I think um, I'm not, you know, they change the terminology for, like, my generation every other day. <laughs> like, I'm not really sure if I'm considered a millennial or the one before that, I'm not really sure. Um, but I do think, I think especially like 
in terms of high school students and younger or even those uh, fresh out of high school, I think that the amount of um, school shootings um, the last couple of years, I think that that's their their moment there. I think that's what's kind of leading that charge. Um, I think here in this region, I definitely think um, what happened in Ferguson was kind of equivalent to what's going on in Florida for a lot of young people. Um, I, I agree. Yeah. I, and, and in this community, especially, we have a legacy of redlining Mm-hmm. That goes back into the 1930s. I mean, the Federal Housing Administration that everybody talks about as being such a great thing mm. for getting people into home ownership. Yeah. Mm. That really was, that was really steered away from black people. Yeah. It was really a white people's program. I mean, it was, you know, and, and, and I think that Franklin Roosevelt, for all of his good intentions, and Eleanor Roosevelt trying to help people who are African Americans, there was a political reality about that that was, that was still, uh, layered with racism and there's a, a marvelous study that was done uh tedious in its detail mapping decline mm-hmm. about st louis and the way st louis was redlined mm-hmm. and in the 1993-94 uh, period uh senate was going to have a hearing on redlining of insurance which is very important in any urban area and all the uh states and the insurance companies said oh we never kept any data on that while there was a bureaucrat in the Division of Insurance, the Department of Insurance in Jefferson City, who kept those data. And Jay Angoff was the director of insurance at the time, and he went out and testified. We had the data. It showed that there were places in St. Louis that couldn't be insured. Mm-hmm. There were places where you, yeah. where the insurance was much higher. And, of course, you know we know that insurance is higher depending upon the crime rates of the area, but, but, I, but you could follow the patterns. The patterns were the same as the racial patterns that were established in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. I'm always suspicious when someone says, we don't keep data on that. Yes. Yeah. I don't think, you know, you I just think don't that's, think that's ever true. Yeah. I don't think, I just don't think it's true. Or you could keep data and you think to yourself, nah, <laughs> we shouldn't write this down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I think even today in St. Louis, there's an explicitness to our own racial political math that I wonder if other places acknowledge. I mean, if you look at any St. Louis mayoral election, if you look at mm-hmm. any kind of statewide election, it's still talked about in these very stark terms. Mm-hmm. Like, which mayoral candidate will win the Southwest white vote? You know, and I don't live mm-hmm. in the Southwest part of St. Louis City, but I have to wonder if I, you know, it feels at times weird to be just codified into some kind of like cog in the city map. And I wonder, is it a good thing that we're that explicit about it? Is it, is it just a sign that we are too accepting of it or that we're more willing perhaps because of Ferguson to acknowledge that that's what's true? Mm. Well, there was always kind of a deal cut when I first came here. And that is that in the board of estimate enforcement, which is the three person uh, Mm -hmm. group that has the budgetary power in the city, one black, two whites. Uh, and that obtained until uh, well, Freeman Bosley ran first for circuit uh, clerk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that race, uh, there was a candidate named C. Joe Rohde, who was an elderly African-American woman on our side. And she took about enough votes away from Joe Rohde, the clerk, 
to actually swing the election to him. A lot of people complained, but Joe Rody didn't because he knew it, you know, that mm -hmm. the game had been played by his rules. And, you know, I, I'm probably speaking more for him than I should, but he was an elegant man uh, in a way that I thought the 17th Ward that he ran tried better to accommodate the influx of uh, minorities into that ward than a lot of wards did. Uh, and uh, uh, so, and then Bosley got elected mayor, and then that changed the map. Um, and then the white voters of the city voted for Clarence Harmon, an African-American, but he turned out not to be the kind of mayor that they wanted. Uh, and so uh, that, I mean, but there's an interesting progression from when there was sort of the, the seats were assigned mm -hmm. and then you have to tip over the seats and, 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 and get people really energized. But I think it's, it's very um, interesting to see the pattern of voting now because mm -hmm. there's an awful lot of white people who voted for Tashara Jones in that primary. Mm -hmm. There's a fair number of African-Americans who voted for Lysa, Lida Cruz. And so, mm -hmm. and especially among the young, the racial differences are not as important. Yeah. They're not as determinative as, uh, as yeah. they used to be. I think too, I wonder if some of that is, or could be attributed to, I think that for as many issues as social media causes. Sure. Yes. I think that... We've, we've um, been hearing about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. For as many Russians <laughs> that are That's actively right. commenting on yes. this how at many, this moment. Exactly. How many bots got involved in the city election exactly. of recent exactly. years? Right? So for as many issues as it causes, I do think, I, I wonder if some of the changing demographics of how pockets of the city vote or how certain demographics vote can be attributed to just like general knowledge, like mm -hmm. understanding um, that this is a political cog system, but I don't have to go along with what, mm -hmm. what my neighborhood cog is supposed to do. Right. And I, and I also think that that we can't overlook the, the great contribution that immigrants have made to the city. Because mm -hmm. originally back 30 years, 40 years ago, the Asian population came here, the Vietnamese and, and others, and really were in the south side. I mean, when I came here in 1975, Highway 40 was kind of dividing line. There were very few African-Americans south of Highway 40. There were mm -hmm. very few whites north of Del Mar. So, uh, I mean, just in general, in that kind of part of the city. But then... Uh, the Asians really improved the city. They got higher incomes, and they a lot of them moved to the suburbs. And you know, you've got the uh, part of University City where there's a lot of restaurants and stores and mm -hmm. things that are that are developed to that, but are not in the city. And then the Bosnians came. Uh, Seventy-five thousand or so came. Yeah. They did a lot of uh, work in the city too. So it wasn't just young entrepreneurial whites and blacks mm -hmm. that came wow. and moved and made the city their home um, immigrant populations and you have to worry about choking off that source right. of uh, of yeah. energy and labor yeah. and so forth yeah it's funny because i think nationally different cities get kind of labeled different things right and i think the national media you're never really hearing about st louis unless it's something that's a horrifying and b about a very specific kind of racial balance. And I think mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's like remarkable that there hasn't been more national coverage of, of the 
Bosnian immigration to mm-hmm. St. Louis, given our refugee conversation right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I did want to ask about, um, speaking of racial divisions, I always think the best way, so we're, to just say publicly, both Katie and I have worked in schools, so we're like maybe a little biased <laughs> on this topic. But, I mean, I think you can tell a lot by schools. And I think, you know, certainly the yeah. legal promise of Brown versus Board of Education in St. Louis translated into, I think, the longest yes. the longest desegregation legal yeah. fight. And mm-hmm. between us and Kansas City, mm-hmm. both in, this, in the same border state, we spent more on desegregation remedies than anybody, and probably maybe the rest of the country combined. I mean, yeah. over a period of 20 years or 30 years, we spent $3 billion in wow. court-ordered remedies for, for segregation. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I was involved with, uh, on behalf of Governor Carnahan in the 90s, studying, because we knew the courts were going to get out of the desegregation business. Mm. They had been in it for a long time. And some of the things that were that were done were working, some were not. In Kansas City, they got a fair number of kind of like new school buildings. Mm. We, in St. Louis, we're, we're in love with our older buildings, <laughs> so we rehabbed them. But yeah. they built things that look like colleges. Uh, and the, um, uh, and the and, and we have the interdistrict transfer program. Mm-hmm. And the first year we tried this, we had the business community, both from Kansas City and St. Louis, trying to working with the legislature and with us to figure out, well, what's the way forward on this? Mm-hmm. We didn't get a bill passed, but we got an interim committee. And we had a bunch of legislators. Um, I was very impressed with how seriously they took their mission. Mm-hmm. And when they came and looked at the schools and what was going on, and who was where and why things were, uh, one of the things that they put in that bill, they put a lot of things in that bill, by the way, but one of the things they put in the bill was a mechanism for keeping the interdistrict transfer program alive. You could have knocked me over with a feather when they did that because what they said was, we can take a kid from St. Louis and continue to move him to a suburban district and for the same money, including some transportation, have, the, have them uh, get that experience. Um, we were spending money on magnet schools. We have some magnet schools in the city that were doing very well. One of the things I like about Metro is that when they were looking at when we were looking at data way back and when, you'd see that some of the highest test scores in the state in various subjects were from Metro. And then I would mm-hmm. say to the people from outstate Missouri that I was working with, you know that Metro is a majority black school, don't you? <laughs> oh, so I mean, so we, you know, now. What I didn't tell them was that you had to take a test to get into Metro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it would be natural to assume that maybe somebody would be good at taking yeah. tests in that school and they would make sure that people yeah. knew how to take a test or they'd already come here knowing how to take a test. But um, there's so many things. And, and in that same legislation about what to do about that, they put in the provisions about taking over a school district that was unaccredited. Yeah. And that happened in the city. Now, you can complain about that or praise it. But it doesn't matter to me. I can come at it from either way. But the city schools have made enormous progress Yeah. with that group that has been running it. I, I had more experience uh, in that era with the Kansas City School Board. And I have to tell you, I came away with my head scratched <laughs> an awful lot of nights because 
an awful lot of people with very good intentions run for school boards. On, they got a particular idea, and then you put a whole bunch of them together, yeah. and their ideas clash. The Kansas City Board used to stay up until 2 o'clock in the morning fighting with each other about stuff that I wasn't sure. But oh, whenever I showed up, because I was the governor's representative, I only did it a few times, they would, they would all unite to <laughs> beat what, me up. You should have gone <laughs> on every meeting. Nothing unites people like a common enemy. enemy. Right. Yeah, and exactly. the reason was that the state wasn't giving them enough money. Mm. Well, to be fair, you once that told was... me that there are like two people in the state of Missouri that understand how we fund schools. Yes. And if memory serves me correct, doesn't one of them have a degree in like yes, astrophysics? The... Well, no, actually, <laughs> one, of the, one of the writers of the 93 School Foundation for me, which has been replaced by the one that was written in 2005, was ABD in, in theoretical physics, yes. Yes, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, there's he now no... works for the National Education <laughs> Association, the NEA. There's uh, no way that at least a solid I, part of I, that, I, the electorate, would need... I read that yeah. statute when I first got sure. into this game, okay? And I thought, what the heck is this? <laughs> I mean, it had a formula. I mean, it actually had a literally a formula. I mean, you know, with a, a, a denominator and a numerator oh, and all sorts gosh. of things. Um but it was important to understand, and I understood it for about oh, 15 minutes longer than I needed to. <laughs> but, uh, but, it, but many school superintendents uh, understand it because it's my old friend Harold Caskey, who was our Senate sponsor, uh, probably the most brilliant legislator I ever worked with, a man who was blind, who I could read these things to, and he could get on the floor of the Senate and explain them and argue about them. But he said the most dangerous place in the state of Missouri was between a school superintendent and a dollar bill. <laughs> That's hard to deny. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. Because they're all, I mean... And, because and they need. I mean, they have needs. They and have needs. Yeah. And, and also, school districts have wildly disparate abilities to raise their own local money. Yeah. yeah. And we depend, and the system depends on local taxation for probably more than half of the money we spend on public education in the state. And so... Mm -hmm. That's why we have local control. That's why we have local mm -hmm. taxpayers, because we need to engage them. If we could think of a different way to do this through the state income tax or something like that, we would probably have a more equitable system. But it's not equitable to have school districts where you get 6000 per spent per kid and 15000 spent per kid. That can't be justified by any stretch of the imagination mm -hmm. in terms of policy. The law seems to have... Um, accommodated itself to that. I mean, I dissented, of course, but it accommodated itself <laughs> to that. Um, when you were, so your main years in Jefferson City with Governor Kernahan were 90... 90, actually, I went, I was on his campaign in 92. I was transition director in the 92 uh, after the election until 93, and then I was chief counsel in 93 and 94, and then I he asked me to stay on and do special counsel. I went back to teaching yeah. at St. Louis U, so my special counsel work, which was about the schools, mm -hmm. was part-time, maybe obsessively part-time, <laughs> until I was appointed to the court in 98, which was also the year we passed the uh, legislation about. So right. it was a good time to be right. moving to something else. Right. Did he, um, how does Jeff City look these days compared to when you were there? Different. I don't yeah. know there very often. <laughs> it's <laughs> that different. But, <laughs> they, they, but I have to say that, that one of the things that has remained constant 
is that there's a lot of people in Jeff City who don't like St. Louis. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, occasionally I would hear people, in, even in the governor's office, in a Democratic governor, whom we all love, some of the staff would refer to St. Louis as Planet St. Louis, <laughs> as in, do they know that the rest of the state exists? I've well, heard that a yeah, lot. Yeah, you've heard that, right? Yeah, I've definitely heard that. There's a reason for that, <laughs> one reason, that I, will, that I will defend the St. Louis metropolitan <laughs> area, and that is, and I don't know what the numbers are now, but I looked at them back in the 90s. Something like uh, 63% of the revenue of the state of Missouri comes from the St. Louis metropolitan area. Yeah. We get back about 39%. Yeah. So if you look at state government from a real from a realistic standpoint, it's a wealth transfer mechanism to transfer wealth from St. Louis to other parts of the state. That's not exactly how I would say Governor Eric Reitens <laughs> portrays the relationship of Jefferson City to St. Louis. Well, you know, maybe he'll think better of us or worse, depending on our circuit attorney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is... Well, we're in a clean, I don't know where the corruption is these days, but I, I can see an awful lot of money sloshing around, but I don't know where it came from or where it's going. <laughs> and that's different. I mean, uh, you could tell where yeah. money was back uh, in, in the uh, previous days. But in terms of the legislature itself, when I was in, in Jefferson City with, with the Carnegie, during the Carnegie administration, the legislature was controlled by the Democrats. Yeah. But when I came to Missouri in, in the 70s, I, uh, I grew up in Minnesota. I recognized the, many of the Democrats in, from outstate Missouri. In Minnesota, we call them Republicans. They call themselves Republicans now, I think. Pardon? I yes. said, I think they call themselves well, Republicans they, now. Well, yeah, they're absolutely right, because they've... Um, and I've made a little bit deeper analysis, and I hope I'm not offending anybody, but you, you could tell which counties were Democrat and which counties were Republican back in the 80s by where they were in the Civil War because the Democrats were the Confederates. Well, then they figured out that the Democrats and Republicans had switched places. So what I refer to an awful lot of the some parts of the state is that we have some people who are Republicans in, in the way that we all know Republicans are, you know, fiscally conservative and mm -hmm. all that. And then you've got a whole bunch of them that are just Confederates. You know, um, that's a historical uh, Phenomenon, fact. fact. Okay, it is. <laughs> <laughs> You're not disagreeing with me, are? and 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 Katie actually lived in, in Atlanta, so you've been, mm -hmm. you know, in 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 a, in a real southern city. But you mm -hmm. know, there, there's differences, aren't there? In there Atlanta. are. Yeah, That's yeah. Political power among African Americans. Right? Yeah, I think, and we talked about this earlier. I think one of the things that I noticed um, in coming to St. Louis in what 2004 was just um, there, I think it's just, it's, Atlanta's a more, Atlanta is a city of transplants. I think mm -hmm. it's a lot easier for outsiders to come in and find jobs and run for offices and, you know, start businesses and different things like that. I think St. Louis is, it's, it's just a tougher town to break into if you aren't from here and if you don't have ties here, um, which I think, I definitely think it's to St. Louis's detriment. I yes. think that... Um, Who your family is and where you went to high school. Right, all right, right, right. It's very determinate of what you can and can't do. Mm -hmm. There's three people in this conversation and none of us can answer the high school question. I have an answer. <laughs> oh, what's your answer? Well, I, I, I grew up in Rochester, Minnesota, and I went to a, a Catholic high school 
that was uh, uh, a co-ed and kind of working class, middle class people. And so I say, I didn't go to high school here, but if I had, it would have been to Bishop DeBerg. Oh. What, I what, adopted one. What do you think your high school would be, Maureen, the closest? Well, the tricky thing about where I grew up, which is Ann Arbor, Michigan, is that probably the closest school analog would be something like the college school, maybe, or mm-hmm. some other kind of relatively hippy-dippy affair. Mm-hmm. For the record, to everyone listening to this podcast, I went to the only high school in the nation that has a rainbow-colored tassel because, and I quote, no colors are more important than other colors. <laughs> um, <laughs> Your high school stories are my favorite stories. Yeah, they're really, it was quite a time. We had a, ze- our, our mascot was a zebra with different shapes on him, not just black and white stripes because... <laughs> Again, well, you wouldn't no want to shakes. confine ourselves. We wouldn't want to confine ourselves. A rude awakening when I found out that zebras do, in fact, mostly just have stripes. But you know, so but in in other places, those schools. You know, I also went to a public school. I went to public school K through twelve, and my parents didn't have to pay, and they didn't have to really decide. Mm-hmm. Um, I walked to I walked to my schools mm-hmm. that I went to, and I think. That's a really different experience of parents here. I mean, parents here are like little college counselors. I mean, in the city, you know, it doesn't, in St. Louis, it doesn't really matter public or private. Even parents that don't have the resources for private schools are still, you know, when I worked in education, every parent I knew was like playing the game. You know, where can we move? Where can we rent? What can we, where can I get my kid into? What address can I Can I get into the magnet school? Can I get into a charter school? Right. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I I completely agree. I don't. I went to a public school um, in Atlanta as well, the suburbs of Atlanta. Mm. To be fair, what? Well, out of just curiosity, what would it be most like? Um, I think, I think I probably like maybe like a Hazelwood Central or maybe mm. one of the Parkway schools. Yeah. Um, my high school was a pretty well mixed demographic. Um, yeah in the like northeast suburbs of Atlanta, mm-hmm. but still technically the Atlanta metro area. Mm-hmm. So I am, <laughs> I did indeed grow up in Atlanta. This seems important to you for reasons I it's, don't quite understand. It's very but I important. Like. I think it has um, to do with the color of the clay of the earth. Yes. Right. Also, one of the Migos went to my high school. So <laughs> I just want I just want that to be on record. Um, but yeah, I think, um, just the the difference in my experience growing up going to public schools and then working in St. Louis public schools is just vastly different. Um, I completely agree. I think that parents here have to make decisions that I don't think my mom ever had to make in terms of like, you know, moving across the city to find suitable schools for my sister and myself, um, which... Like, it's stressful. Yeah, it's a whole added layer of work. It's a whole added layer of stress. Yeah. Yeah. And just, like, figuring out, yeah, the system, playing the game. Yeah. That's just a, that's a lot. In addition to all of the other things that you are tasked with as a parent of a child in school. Yeah. Yeah. The money pressures are not, we're not there for us. Yeah. Um. And college, and you know, for me, law school wasn't very expensive because 
That was before my generation. Actually, it's not my generation because I'm not a boomer. <laughs> Just for the record. What, what is your? What do you call your? What do you self-identify as? The generation greatest wise? generation. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I had a couple of very bright law clerks one year who, both women who looked at me one day and said, "What year were you? How old are you?" And I said, "I was born in the Roosevelt administration." And they kind of looked up and they, I thought they were thinking. Franklin or Theodore? <laughs> I was born 12 days before Roosevelt died. I mean, after Roosevelt died. So, um, and the war was still going on. So, boomer means post-war boomers, yeah. right? Yeah. But they're the generation that screwed it up because mm. the amount of, of uh, basic support for public education, especially at the higher education yeah. level, Every time, I mean, I, when I was in Jeff City, it, it actually happened after uh, after the Carnahan era, but in the 2000s, uh, when, when Bob Holden was governor, when Matt Blunt was governor, when there was a budget problem, the first thing to cut is higher education yeah. because you got mm -hmm. student loan programs, let the rate payers, let the tuition payers borrow the money to come to, to college. Well. Mm -hmm. So my right my my tuition at the University of Minnesota Law School is one hundred and fifty dollars a quarter. I mean, I and people would, hate me when they when they when they when they hear me say that. Yeah. And, the, and the money was kind of cheap too because I worked also. Yeah, I would I would cut off a limb right now <laughs> and put it on this table to have one hundred and fifty dollars in tuition too. expenses. <laughs> <laughs> well, the state of Minnesota underwrote the. University yeah. to about probably ninety percent of the law school's budget came from the university. You know, mm -hmm. it's not that way anymore, even in Minnesota. But, but it was there was a fundamental understanding that that education was important. It was important for economic development. We, we've we've kind of you know people will scream about it, but they won't do anything about it because there is a connection. Yeah. And if you want to move a business here, what the first thing you need. Not, not tax kids. credits. You, yeah. need, you need an educated workforce. Mm -hmm. And you need schools where your people that you bring in can send their kids to school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do want to say, though, that I don't think you're completely off the hook for our boomer politicians, given that you, I know. from my understanding, <laughs> personally instructed some of the heavy hitters. <laughs> well, okay. Francis G. Slay. I did. Uh, Jimmy Edwards. Freeman Bosley. Freeman Bosley. Yes. Can you tell us any gossip about them as students? They were all very good students. They were excellent. <laughs> you know, when you get elected mayor of St. Louis or or uh, uh, or whatever, you get an automatic up upgrade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're a distinguished alumni. That's right. <laughs> Once more. No, they you know they they were uh, uh, and you know they they were they they, they in their each in their own way was uh, interesting and and uh, energetic and energized uh, 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 and and kind of the same way that they are you know that they turned out in in should we say adult life although when you come to law school you're supposed to be an adult but well I'm sure that's it's, questionable uh, it's questionable yeah I don't not, know if I'm an adult. <laughs> I'm not sure I am either, but that's a different story. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think that it's it. You know, I I can only imagine that it's interesting to to look at a group of people, whether it's like a law school class or any one of these kinds of fellowship, young political, you know, groups, and and pick out who you think is gonna 
to rise to the top. What's that thing you say about the turtle on the post? (laughs) If you see a turtle on a post, you know that he didn't get there by himself. (laughs) It's it's an old saying, and I first heard it from uh, Reverend Cleaver, Emanuel Cleaver, who's a congressman in uh, Kansas City, a really wonderful man. Uh, But, you know, know, at the uh, Midwest uh, Black Law Students uh, Convention a couple weeks ago, Mm -hmm. we were talking about judges and judicial selection, and I said, well, the way you become a judge is look around your class and look at somebody who, does that person look like a senator? Does that person look like a a governor? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of facetious, but the fact of the matter is that, that that that's how judicial selection ultimately occurs is mm-hmm. through networking. And I think that, you know, uh, lawyers who want to be judges eventually force themselves to do networking in some kind of way. Yeah. Know? And as a judge, you, you do have to, I mean, on a serious note, as a judge, you have to get along. You have to get along specifically with a number of people who I'm sure you are not immediately, um, you know, political brethren no. with. And you know, you, you come to you 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 know, it's kinda like having relatives. <laughs> Close yeah. family members with the rest of the Missouri Supreme Court. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> <laughs> with all the good things and bad things that might come with that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know how much time we have left, but I of course cannot have you on this podcast and not ask you a question about midwifery. Oh, very good. Um so for our listeners. We go back a long way, the midwives and I, we, and actually the nurse midwives even farther back. So, so Judge Wolf is writing, is working on some I'm, material mm-hmm. about his representation of midwives, Missouri being one of the only states in case. Yeah, well, no, no, it's, um, um, it, it's, it's a very interesting development <laughs> along the way. I got involved with, uh, I had a little grant from the, Department of Health, Education, and Welfare to do clinical education and health law. This is like a long, long time ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, we ended up in one of our projects doing work on nursing practice. And I got acquainted with Sister Jean Moyer, who had started the nurse midwifery program at, uh, at St. Louis University. It's an absolutely spectacular woman. who They had a great program. It eventually went out of business and for you know, there were not areas you could place them because there was such a bad environment in Missouri for uh, nurse midwifery. And then I got a call one day from a friend of mine who was practicing, a former student who was practicing down in uh, Steelville, Missouri. And he said, uh, they're coming after our midwife. And I said, all right, mm, our midwife, eh? And I, so I got involved in, in representing uh, a lay midwife or a direct mm-hmm. entry midwife who was uh, who was being sued by the Board of Healing Arts. Well, the reason she was being sued, where there could have been 150 other, because that's about how many lay midwives there were in Missouri practicing in rural areas by and large, was that she actually had a really nice bunch of stories in the Rolla Daily News about how great she was and all of that, and that kind of got the attention of the Board of Healing Arts. And so we tried her case, such as it was, and... and uh, because Missouri had uh, gone out of the midwife licensing business in 1959. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and so we lost. Uh, but in the meantime, the, uh, 
while we were in the process of losing one of my, a woman who became one of my other clients, who was a lay midwife who went to nursing school to become a nurse and nurse midwife, uh, got together with the Department of Health and did a study of home births in Missouri, which was published in the American Journal of, of Public Health. Um, and it was, um, I think, quite affirming of uh, non-traditional uh, uh, ways of, of, uh, of birthing. And I've met a lot of people along the way. Uh, uh, but in the uh, legislative sessions in 2005, uh, 2005, that was when Senator John Loudon put in a provision in a bill. There were, the midwives had been lobbying for years to be licensed, legalized, or something like that, and they were being shut off at every turn. Uh, they came up with a word, tocology. <laughs> it's Greek for childbirth, midwifery. And so they put in a little sentence about uh, that notwithstanding, it was in a health insurance bill, that notwithstanding any other provision of law, a person who is certified by, and they, there's a certifying agency that certifies midwifery programs that for what are now called the certified professional midwives, which are basically the old direct entry midwives, but with a, probably more training and, and supervision and, and apprenticeship. Uh, that that person could uh, engage could engage in the practice of, in, of tacology. <laughs> Nobody asked what that was. Because <laughs> uh, surely Senator Loudon was determined as a good Christian fellow, and he is, not to lie to them, but nobody asked. And I went to the house, and nobody asked. <laughs> Some of the people probably knew, but they said, hmm, good. <laughs> Surely Don't ask. these senators read every word of every bill, though. Of course they do. <laughs> but they just didn't have a dictionary handy. <laughs> so that, that, uh, that, that, and by the way, so since... 2007, when I think that's when the, the court threw out the challenge to the uh, to the process for for uh, doing it. The law's mm -hmm. been in place for 10 years now. Yeah. And you know, life goes on, and life is you know life is good. entered into the world. Well, it is entered into in the world, and it's not always under the control of the government or its agents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's you know, it's I think state. Nothing like local politics to really bring it to the, to the very personal level. Mm -hmm. It is, it, it, you know, and, and and the people that I've met along the way who were the clientele of, of midwives who had their babies at home or in, in birth centers, um, are quite passionate yeah. about the choices they make and the kind of settings that they have and the bonding that they feel that they can get yeah. with their children and 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 that's. Uh, and so it's related to, I mean, the people that I've met along the way who did midwifery and then some who were childbirth assistants now called doulas mm -hmm. have a fair amount of training. Um, they, they know uh, basically when there's trouble, when yeah. you really need to have medical. And, and, the, and the data in the, in the United States are not particularly good for the medical model. Yeah. Because we now have 32% of babies in the United States are born by cesarean section. Mm -hmm. The World Health Organization says once you get beyond 15%, it's not good. Yeah. You may be doing damage. 
Yeah. So there's 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 been a resurgence, I think, of Mm -hmm. um, women who want midwives and doulas as part of their birthing team. I think Mm -hmm. especially with African-American women, there's Mm -hmm. such a um, again, there's been a troubling uptick in the number of African-American women who have died in childbirth. And this is, you know, in the United States in 2000, you know, 15, 16, 17. And so it's definitely on the upswing, which I think is really great. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting, it's, you know, I think again, as I like we'll to say about written. you, you we'll were, you were about. yeah, but you were, you know, 10 to 15 years ahead of the, you know, the law kind of has to bend to meet this kind of natural growing mm-hmm. of, of women. You know, there's such a long history and tradition yeah. of black women having to kind of work yeah. in this area for their own communities and, and, mm-hmm. you know, the last, you, were the, you were there with the law in like 1984 and <laughs> like Platt County or whatever. And then here, here we are today, you know, well, the last licensed midwife in Missouri, and she was still alive. And when I represented Cheryl Southworth, whose name is Cheryl Brewer now, was a woman named Lily, an African-American woman who practiced around Kennett, Missouri, down in the deep boot hill. Mm-hmm. and had an African-American clientele. But it was very hard under the old midwifery licensing procedures to get licensed. Mm-hmm. I mean, because the tests were administered by the doctors and then they licensed right. a bunch. But in the ni- late 19th century, um, there were five schools of midwifery in St. Louis alone. And it was largely the result, largely a product of the fact that the German immigration, the Germans came here and they brought their midwives with them. They opened schools of midwifery, but by the early 20th century, there were no schools of midwifery. Mm-hmm. And we were in the process where basically the medical profession took over the birthing business by about the 1920s. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in my own family, my grandmother was, my mother kind of referred to her as a midwife. She was the one they called when somebody went into labor in the farm country in southeastern Missouri, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And um, and then, so she had her babies at home. Mm-hmm. And then my mother had her babies in the hospital. So yeah. that's the progression. And yeah. you, you were probably born in a hospital. I was yours. indeed born in a hospital. Mm-hmm. And and my grandmother, she's, she's passed now, but she used to tell me all the time that she was absolutely not there <laughs> for any of her her grandchildren's birth because she um, they were dramatic is what is how she put it my her daughters were dramatic <laughs> so she didn't wanna, she didn't want to be anywhere around until after all of us were born and out and and she'd be in the hospital drama yeah oh my yeah, the hospital drama, the first-time mom drama, the all of it. So she said, I've been there, done that, and I yeah. don't need to see it again? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Wait a minute, that's born. the generation of, you know, that's the generation that's supposed to help out, right? Yeah, my grandmother, uh, she was not. <laughs> she <laughs> she, she definitely the, did not want many to. Many of the early midwives in, the, in Missouri, and especially in the rural areas, were the mm-hmm. granny midwives. They were yeah. the women who had had their babies, and then they... right. Uh, right. Took up midwifery in their forties, and right. then grandmothers at age forties, you know. In the right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The business of being born is 
potentially oh, you know, the name of the documentary, which I'm stealing right now. But <laughs> is that right? The, I don't know. I'm. I had a. I said it, and then I thought to myself, "That's not an original thought." But <laughs> you know, I mean, it is that you know people have babies, right? Like people have had babies forever. But how forever. we how we structure it, mm-hmm. uh-huh. and who makes money off of it, mm-hmm. and how it's done, and who's protected. I mean, you know, high risk. Changes. Uh, you know, identified high risk uh, pregnancies can be brought to term with the right. state of modern medicine right. as such. That, mm-hmm. that, but that you know, so we we are saving more babies than we did even in the medical system forty years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there is, you know, uh, but we're giving up something too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe we're not identifying our risks as well as we should. Yeah. With that, I'm going to bring this talk to a close, although we might, dear listeners, keep talking about midwifery after we turn <laughs> no, this no. off. You can <laughs> talk about the government. We can, well, know. we're going to say all when of When should the government be in your life? Okay. <laughs> yeah, when should the government? I mean, they can you listen know? to our phones, but they cannot be in those birthing centers. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, FBI yeah. agents who are currently <laughs> listening. So to my FBI personal agent, Lucy, mm-hmm. yeah, well, have the, a good night. The Handmaid's Tale is <laughs> sure. not true yet. That's, mm-hmm. ooh, ooh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Thank you to both of our, to our special co-host, Catherine Redman, and to our esteemed uh, generational scholar, <laughs> lawyer, <Thank you. laughs> Observer of power shifting and regular tavern visitor, but only for children's funding. Only for children's That's funding. That's correct. It's occasional. Occasional, <laughs> Occ- occasional tavern visitor. That's right. When you know you, you see me in the tavern, you know I'm on a mission. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Judge Mike Paul. So thank you. Thank you.